On this day, Jesus is showing us, He's giving us a picture, He's giving us a demonstration, He's giving us a real-life metaphor for His return. That's what the entry into the Holy City is. It's an acting out of Jesus' second return. Verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So picture the scene. The disciples are just louder and louder and louder. Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. And then here's Jesus, weeping. There's several words in the Greek that can mean cry. Luke uses the strongest one he can use. So what Luke is saying is Jesus isn't shedding a tear. Jesus didn't get teary-eyed. He's sobbing. This word could mean bewailing or moaning with lamentation. This is a stronger word than John uses to describe Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is wailing. So the crowd is so loud and shouting and just praising God. And here's Jesus sobbing. Maybe they saw Jesus and thought he was crying for joy. Maybe they can't hear him. The crowd is just louder and louder and Jesus is weeping over his city He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my people. If you just knew that this is the day that brings peace, but you don't see it. And so you're now blind to it. And he's just emotionally drained and tears flowing down his face as he's looking down at the city of his people. And the people, meanwhile, are still thinking this is the best day of their life. Now let's go back up to verse 39. And some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They've gone too far. They are saying things now that necessarily equate you with God. They've gone too far. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And look at Jesus' response. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does Jesus mean? For decades, I thought this is what Jesus meant. God's Messiah will be praised. And if they stop praising, then the stones will have to praise because God's Messiah will be praised. For decades, I thought that's what that meant. That's not what Jesus means. To get at what Jesus means, let's think for just a minute about some of the other times that Jesus talked about stones. When did Jesus talk about stones? He talked about stones like uh, <clears throat> stone the builders rejected. We know that. He talked about 
those who lead little ones astray. It's better than a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. He talked about, he talked about stones on other occasions. The enemy came to him during his time of temptation and says, make this, these stones into bread, right? But all of those times are separated by a totally different context. When did Jesus talk about stones in a context close to this one? Actually, it's going to happen in just a couple of chapters in Luke 23. In Luke 23, Jesus goes into the temple for the last time. And he pronounces woe upon the Pharisees, woe upon the temple. And he's leaving the temple in disgust. Because what did he just see in the temple? He just saw a poor widow put her very last penny, all that she had to live on, because she had been told if she does that, God will bless her. And he's disgusted by that. And he leaves the temple in disgust. And while he does so, the disciples say, Lord, look at this magnificent place. And Jesus says, I tell you. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives and declares the Olivet Discourse. So in that context, Jesus talks about the stones of the temple being torn down as though it's a testimony against something. So this teaches us of a Hebrew saying. It was a very common saying that went kind of like this. Injustice and unrighteousness committed against innocent people, the results of that injustice cries out as a testimony against you. For example, if the Jews might say something like this, that, that if an unrighteous person comes and destroys your house, then the wreckage of your house cries out as a testimony. We see a similar thing in Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is talking about the Babylonians and how the Babylonians are such an unrighteous, unjust people. And he says, woe to these Babylonians who come and they tear down these houses. He says, the stones of the houses and the beams of the houses will cry out against you. And that was a common Hebrew saying. That when injustice and unrighteousness produce destruction... The destroyed things cry out as testimony against your unrighteousness. Not unlike what God said in Genesis chapter 4, when He comes to Cain and says, Cain, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. Not unlike what Jesus will say later about the blood of the prophets crying out from the ground. Or what the martyrs, those who have lost their life for Jesus will say in the Revelation, when they say, Lord, our blood cries out to you, when will you avenge it? So there was this common saying that if out of unrighteousness, stones were torn down, then those stones would cry out as testimony against your unrighteous acts. That's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, if they stop proclaiming me as Messiah, then the consequence is going to be this will be torn down and the very stones will be the testimony of your unrighteousness. He says this explicitly in just a few sentences. Look down at verse 43. For the days will come upon you 
When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus makes it explicit there. The Messiah of God's people is entering the holy city. And for the moment, they are expressing recognition of him. The Pharisees say, rebuke these people for recognizing you as Messiah. Jesus says, if they stop recognizing me as Messiah, this place will be torn down as a testimony to their silence. That's exactly what happened. They are proclaiming him as the king, the son of David now. But those proclamations will soon stop. And they will turn into the proclamations of crucify him, crucify him. Give us instead the robber, the murderer, and crucify him. Away with him. And Jerusalem will never again to this day proclaim Jesus as Messiah. Oh, there's Pentecost and there will be a church in Jerusalem, yes. But Jerusalem as a city will not ever again proclaim Jesus as Messiah up to this day. And as Jesus said, 70 years later, or I'm sorry, 40 years later in 70 AD, the Romans come and they tear everything down. And Jesus says, that's a testimony. A testimony to their silence. Their silence that I am the Messiah. God has come to his people. And you did not recognize that this was the day that God came. And as a result, the destruction that will result from your unrighteous Failure to recognize your Messiah will be a testimony now hundreds and hundreds of years later. That's Jesus' meaning about the stones. Now, what was the whole thing about today? What was the whole message of Jesus' entering into the city? Because we began by saying that this day should for all believers be a most important time of celebration. This should be at the top of our list of Christian holidays of the year. Why? What's the meaning behind this? What what is this teaching us? I think to answer that question, we simply need to ask ourselves, or at least start with this one question. Jesus, on this day, receives worship. In fact, Jesus not only receives worship, Jesus engineers the worship. I mean, didn't he? He didn't just let people worship him. Jesus brought this about. The whole donkey thing? I mean, he's the one that put that idea in the disciples' head. Without that, he would have walked into the city. Certainly they made the connection between an animal that's never been used before and the humility of a donkey, certainly they made that connection. Now Jesus says, go and get that for me. All of Jesus' life, he has refused worship. People would recognize him. I know who you are. Quiet. Don't tell anybody. Demons would recognize him. Quiet. Don't tell anybody. Now, for some reason, Jesus not only receives worship and allows it, he facilitates it. Why this day? 
Why has Jesus spent three years refusing worship and now brings it about himself? Because on this day, Jesus is showing us, he's giving us a picture, he's giving us a demonstration, he's giving us a real life metaphor for his return. That's what the entry into the holy city is. It's an acting out of Jesus' second return. Let's just see some of the ways, some of the parallels about Jesus' entry into the holy city that teach us this is really about Jesus' next entry into the city. I already mentioned that it follows immediately after the parable of the ten minas. We won't go through that parable, but just suffice to say, the point of that parable is about Jesus' return. But then looking at Jesus' entry in itself, let's just take a look at some of the significant parallels. Number one, Jesus, as we just said, allowed himself to be worshipped. He never allowed himself to be worshipped before. Now, he allows it. He brings it about. He facil- in, in other words, he asks for it. Jesus will be worshipped on this day because the next time Jesus is worshipped is, is on his return. The next time Jesus is publicly worshipped will be on his second return. In addition to this, the, the entire people present are showing Jesus submission. Everyone there is showing. Remember the cloaks that they're laying down before the donkey? They're showing their submission. When Jesus returns, we are told, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, that not only will he receive worship from all people, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, but all people will submit to him on that day. This is pointing us to that day. Secondly, Jesus arrives mounted. Jesus has not been mounted his entire life, as far as we know. He's walked everywhere he went, with the exception of riding on a boat a couple of times. Now, Jesus goes to pains to be mounted. Why? Because the next time we see him, he'll be mounted. He's mounted on this donkey now, this symbol of humility. Next time we see him, he'll be mounted on a white horse from Revelation 19 and verse 11. Behold, a white horse. You know, it was tradition in these days that when a king visited another king, You know, you didn't have phones and text messages and everything. So when a king wanted to visit another king, they had to kind of do it carefully. And so the tradition was, if a king came to visit another king while riding a donkey, they could see from a far distance that that king was coming in peace. But if a king came to another kingdom riding a horse, it was a sign that they were coming in war. Jesus came riding a donkey the first time. The second time he comes riding a horse. So this is, the, as far as we know, the first time he's ever been mounted, but he's mounted to show the next time I come, I will come mounted on a horse. Also, Jesus arrives coming at or from the Mount of Olives. Now, we won't take the time to, to explore all the significance of the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives is one of the most significant pieces of real estate in the Bible. The Mount of Olives we see in the Old Testament places like... Uh, for example, in the, in the kingdom of David, remember when David was overthrown and his son temporarily took the throne and David, who was the rightful king, flees the city and he flees across the Mount of Olives? Here, the rightful king, a son of David, also the people are rebelling against him, but he comes to the city over the Mount of Olives. There's so many parallels that we could see in the Old Testament, but we'll skip ahead 
to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Mount of Olives holds great significance for us because, first of all, as we said, Jesus will leave the temple for the last time and He'll go to the Mount of Olives and from the Mount of Olives He will declare this Olivet Discourse that's all about His coming again. Then, we're told that Jesus, who came to the city by way of the Mount of Olives, will go back to heaven by the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, the disciples go and they watch Jesus be carried up and they leave and they come back to Jerusalem. Specifically, we're told, from the Mount that's called Olivet. So Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives and we're told in Zechariah's prophecy, in Zechariah chapter 14, that He will come back via the Mount of Olives. On that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem, and in case there was any doubt, on the east. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. So Jesus comes to the holy city by way of the Mount of Olives, goes back to heaven by the way of Mount Olives, and will come back to the holy city by the way of Mount Olives. Also, Jesus enters the city by the eastern gate. We're told from the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 44, we're told that God says, Then He brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east. And this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Now Christian tradition strongly holds that Ezekiel there is talking about the return of the Son of Man. And how the Son of Man will enter into the holy city by means of the eastern gate, which only makes sense because He will come by way of the Mount of Olives, which is east of the city. So Jesus enters the eastern gate. He will enter the eastern gate again when He returns. Jesus also comes down to the city. The Mount of Olives, as we said, is some 330 feet above the city. So it's like Jesus is symbolically coming down as He will come down from the clouds again when He returns. So He's coming down into the city. When He returns, He will come down into the city as well. This is also Jesus' second coronation. We're told that when we see Him again, He will be wearing a crown of gold. This is His first coronation. The next time will be His second coronation. Jesus' arrival is immediately followed by judgment. Think about this. Jesus enters into the city. And entering into the city, he immediately goes to the temple. And the next morning, he comes back, and the first thing that he does is he cleanses the temple. This is an act of judgment. In fact, the whole week is about condemnation and judgment. So Jesus comes into the city, and the first thing he does in the city is judgment. When Jesus returns, we're told the first thing he will do is judgment. We will stand before him in judgment, we are told. Revelation 20 and verse 12, I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So these are ways in which Jesus' entrance into the city parallel or point us to, or they're an acting out of Jesus' return. Now, let me be careful to say this. Most of you probably know that I believe the Scriptures teach that Jesus will return again one more time, and that is at the end of the period that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. Not everybody in the room believes that, and that's fine. If you believe the Scriptures teach that Jesus will return, first of all, in this sort of a secret coming, and the church will be secretly taken away, and then Jesus will return again, that's fine. My point is not to change your mind. My point, though, is to say... 
that if you are open to seeing, as, as I see the, the Scriptures teach, that Jesus comes one more time at the end of the tribulation, then the picture of Jesus' entrance into the city becomes more vivid. It becomes even more living color. And here's why. When Jesus returns again, His return will be supremely public. We're told every eye will see Him. Do you know this is the most public day of Jesus' entire life? Even more public than the day of His crucifixion. This is the most public day of His entire life. When He returns, He will return in a way that's visible to every eye. But here is the real gem. Here is what makes this such an analogy or an acting out of such living, vivid color for me, and it's this. When Jesus returns, He will be escorted into the city. So Matthew tells us very specifically that Jesus is entering into the city with two different crowds of people. One is the crowd that's following Him, and the other is the crowd that comes out of the city to meet Him. So Jesus is approaching the city, and behind him is a great entourage of followers. And from the city comes another crowd to meet him, and then together these two crowds of people escort Jesus into the city. That is a precise, in my view, precise picture of Jesus' return. When Jesus returns on the clouds, I believe the Scriptures teach that He brings with them the souls of those who are already with Him, and He is met by those who are still alive who believe in Him, and meeting Him, they then escort Him into His kingdom. This is a picture that the Bible shows to us on at least three, three occasions. 1 Thessalonians 4, we're familiar with that, the passage about meeting Jesus in the air. That same word that Paul used is used two other times in the Scripture. It's used at the end of the story of Acts, and it's used in the parable of the the ten widows. I mean, not not the ten widows, the ten virgins. That was kind of the polar opposite, wasn't it? The parable of the ten virgins. Now, both of those times, all three of those times, it means the same thing. It means that there is an important person approaching a city or a town, and a delegation from the town comes and meets them and escorts them in. Paul, near the end of the story of the Acts, Paul approaches Rome, and a group of believers from Rome come out and meet him, and together with those who are with Paul, escort him into the city. In the parable of the ten virgins, the faithful virgins go out and meet the bridegroom and escort him into the bride feast. And I believe that what Paul's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that when Jesus returns, He has with Him the souls of those who are departed in Christ and those who are in Christ and still alive meet Him and escort Him into His kingdom. That is a precise picture of what Matthew shows us here. Now, again, let me be quick to say, if the Scriptures don't lead you to believe, it's fine. I think it makes the picture more vivid, but in any case... It's undeniable 
that this entire event is a picture of His glorious, victorious return. That is why this is, aside from Resurrection Day, this is the greatest Christian holiday we can observe. Because this is the holiday that's about our King coming back for us. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in great victory and in great glory. And He goes to the trouble to show us this picture of what it will be. So that we can look to this and on this day, one week before Resurrection Day, we can say, that's the day. That's the day that's my hope. That's the day that He's coming back for me. He's coming back to every eye will see Him. He's coming back to judgment. He's coming back to submission. He's coming back to worship. He's coming back mounted. He's coming back victorious. And He's coming back to be escorted in. What a day. That's what this story is all about. And that's why we as believers, oh, we should take such great joy in Jesus' entrance into the city because this is the greatest reminder. If you wanted to preach about the, the return of Jesus Christ, there's no greater text to go to than his entrance into the city. This is why all four gospel writers wanted to include it. This is why Luke so carefully puts it together with the parable of the ten minas. This is why each one of the gospel writers is so careful to say, not only is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, he is showing us what he will do when he returns. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.